7 to 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. While uh, studying this passage, excuse me, I forgot to start my timer, and you want me to start a timer because otherwise the Broncos will have already not made it to the playoffs and we'll still be here. (laughs) Yeah, that might be a done deal already. I'm not even sure. Uh, In studying for this passage, I came across this quote from commentator S.M. Baugh, who said this, the one constant in human experience since Adam's fall is enmity. One of the children's Bibles we had growing up had a picture in it, and I'm sure most children's Bibles have something like this. But it had a picture of Adam and Eve leaving the garden. And Adam has his arm around Eve. They're clothed together in the animal skins that God gave to them. And Eve has her hands in her face, her face in her hands, weeping. Behind them is the angel with the flaming sword blocking the way back to the garden. Ever since the fall of Adam, enmity has been the reality of human existence. Enmity first with God, distance from God, separation from God, the threat of God's judgment, and the sure future that that judgment will fall. That's the reality in which all mankind lives. And that enmity extends then to the rest of mankind. It happens immediately. Notice that Adam and Eve, when they sin, they become aware of their sin and the judgment of God. And when God comes to confront them, what's the first thing Adam does? He blames his wife. This woman you gave me. He, he, think about this. He, He sticks her in front of himself to block the wrath of God. Right away, enmity with God produces enmity with others. And you see that enmity work itself out as Genesis progresses. Right away, you have Cain kills his brother Abel. And step by step throughout the story of Genesis, there is death after death after death. The judgment of God on sin, the enmity of God towards sin expressing itself, and the enmity between mankind expressing itself again and again and again. The reality of this fallen world is enmity with each other and with God. And the deep ache in all of our hearts, whether we realize it or not, is for peace. Can we return to peace? Peace with each other and peace with God. Peace with each other because we have peace with God. All causes, all nations, all organizations, all personal pursuits, every family, every marriage, every career, trace it down deep And there is this longing for peace and looking all kinds of places and putting our hope all kinds of places for finding peace. But not one of them, not one career or relationship or cause or nation in history has provided it. When and how can we have peace? Well, our dear Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of our Savior, has good news for us in this passage. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, 11 to 18. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, 
and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, who is sufficient for these things to realize the awful reality of being not at peace with you and to realize the glorious reality of having been joined together at peace with each other and at peace with you because of Christ. Would you cause this glory to to break upon our hearts afresh as we look at your word so that we might live in the peace and the joy, in the motivation and the focus and the hope of this great salvation that you have accomplished. Lord, do that in our hearts as you promise to do through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to walk through this passage tracing three themes as our guides this morning. First, the need for peace. Second, the making of peace. And third, the new people of peace. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to a couple structural things. First... Commentator P.D. O'Brien points this out, and I found it so helpful. Notice in verses 11 to 13 that Paul uses you words. You Gentiles. Second person. But then in verses 14 to 16, he uses we words. We together. First person. And then when he gets to verse 17 to 18, he he goes back to the you, and then he repeats the we. And actually, if you trace the passages after this, he's going to stay with the you thing for a while. He's going to talk about the Jew-Gentile issue for a while. But in this passage, he starts with you, he goes to we, and then he has a sort of concluding you-we together at the end. That's an important thing to notice. And it corresponds, it's not just stylistic, it's, there's theology happening there. But the second thing to notice is in verse 13, he uses this phrase, the far off and the near. And then again, in verse 17, he returns to that phrase, phrase, the far off and the near. I know you all are well taught and you're familiar with this, but often in the Bible, that's a stylistic thing that shows up. When there is a section or a point being made, often it'll be bracketed by things that mirror each other. And it's just telling us, hey, this is something to be considered together. A point has been made between these two things. And so that near and that far off helps us see the structure of this passage. I think the the way this passage is intended to be structured, the flow of Paul's thought is verses 11 to 13, an initial thought that he presents. Verses 14 to 16, an explanation of that thought. Notice the four at the beginning of verse 14. He's going to explain what he just said. And then in verse 17 to 18, he returns to the main thought and just blows it out, sets it up in all its glory, having explained it. That's the the logical flow of thought, or if you will, those are the, the broad horizontal stripes of this passage. What we're gonna do is we're gonna trace some vertical stripes, themes that are woven throughout those three sections. 
But it's just helpful to be aware, I think, of that structure before we do that. So first theme, the need for peace. Paul says in verse 11, therefore, remember. The therefore points up to what he has already said uh, in the beginning of the letter, and I think especially in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, that, that individual Christians, remember that you were once dead, but now God has made you alive. We all know that passage. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. So if you will, Paul's describing for individual Christians, hey, remember, this is what happened to you. You were dead, you were separated from God, and in Christ, he made you alive. But now he wants to talk about that corporately. He wants to address the Gentiles as a group and say, okay, in light of that individual salvation, you Gentiles as a group, I want you to think about something. I want you to remember something. Remember, he says, that at that time... You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. If you hear a note of irony in those phrases, you're right. Paul's taking a sort of glancing blow, and it's a piercing one, glancing though it might be. You know, on his way to making his argument, he's throwing a hard jab at this mentality of there's Jews and there's Gentiles, and that sets up pride, and that sets up self-righteousness, and that sets up animosity, the enmity that's been there from the beginning. This becomes another way of expressing it. You Gentiles, because we're the Jews in the flesh, descended from Abraham, having practiced circumcision, Paul says, yeah, made in the flesh by hands. It has nothing to do with what's going on in your heart. It has nothing to do with the actual transformation that God is after. So this derisive terminology that gets thrown around, the uncircumcision, Paul says, kind of as he goes, that's nonsense. But he does want to highlight for the Gentiles, oh, while the self-righteousness and the pride and the focus on the flesh and not on the heart is foolish and wrong and not what God intended, there was actually a separation set up by God. There was actually a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and that works itself out in five painful realities that he highlights for the Gentiles. He says, remember this. If you're a Gentile Christian, he says, remember this. You were separated from Christ. I think it might be a more helpful translation for us if we said separated from the Messiah. There was this promise that God had given to the Jews. One day, this one will come who will bring about peace. This one who will fulfill the law of God. This one who will reign on the throne and not cease to reign on the throne. One day, this Messiah would come. Gentiles did not have access to those promises. They weren't aware of that promise. Secondly, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This people of God, God had revealed himself to them. God had revealed his law to them. God had revealed his character to them. He had revealed his name, the one who is. These are deep and glorious privileges to know these things, to have God reveal these things, and the Gentiles didn't have those privileges. They were separated from that citizenship. Would have been an acute idea in the Roman world where if you're a Roman citizen, you have all kinds of protections, and if you're not a Roman citizen, you have none, or very few. Paul says, yeah, you, you Gentiles were like that. You did not have access to the privileges and the promises and the hope that are part of being the people of Israel. You were, in fact, he said, strangers to the covenants of promise. God had again and again in various ways pointed forward to all that he was going to accomplish, the peace that he was going to bring about through the Messiah, the permanent peace, the deep peace, Peace, the true peace, the return to the garden. And they were strangers to those covenants. 
Therefore, they had no hope. To live in this world at enmity with each other, to live in this world at enmity with God, with the sure promise of God's judgment, and to have no promise of any way out is to live without hope. They were, in fact, finally without God in the world, set adrift, alone, with no indication that there would be any peace, any rescue, any way out from the judgment of God that had been put in place from the beginning. Further down in the next section, verses 14 to 16, Paul's going to set up this, this picture of a wall. There's a wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. You remember when, after the Exodus and the Red Sea, God, God has done these miraculous things. He's taken his people out of Egypt. He's exercised judgment on the Egyptians, literally crushed them in the ocean He's brought his people safely through, and then he, he starts to reveal himself to his people. He reveals his law. He reveals how they're to live with him. And what happens immediately? It becomes clear immediately that these people, though God has set his affection on them, though he has rescued them, they're really not all that different from the Egyptians they've just been rescued from. They complain and they don't trust, and they worship idols, and they practice immorality. They are not a righteous people. Deep down, they, no less than the Egyptians, are at enmity with God and with each other. And so it becomes this acute problem. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of such people. It is a dangerous situation. Literally, at times, God breaks out in judgment. They can't approach the mountain where the presence of God is because if they do, they're gonna die. And if they worship in the wrong way, fire comes out and destroys them. Why? Because God's holy and they are not. And they are at enmity with him. How can such a holy God dwell in their midst, literally in their midst. Don't, don't skip past, don't let your eyes glaze over when you get to that part where it talks about how the camp is set up. It's, it's literally set up with God in the middle. Their life, their existence, their national identity is oriented around God dwelling with them, and yet that is a precarious situation for sinful people with a holy God because of this enmity. There's, there's not peace. So how can it be? How does God graciously allow this to happen? Well, he allows it to happen through the law. The law, all of the system of ceremonial practices and ethical practices and, and sacrificial practices becomes the means of them being able to dwell with God. They, they are able to have access to God because they practice circumcision, because they obey his law, because they bring their sacrifices when they sin, because they keep all of the things that he's told them to do. The law becomes the gracious means of sinful people dwelling with a holy God, despite the enmity. That is an immense privilege of grace, which the Gentiles do not have access to. There is a wall separating them from that grace. And yet, at the same time, the law also communicates and amplifies the enmity. First of all, it communicates and amplifies the enmity with God because it reveals just how sinful they are. To be confronted as a sinful human being, this, this isn't just a Jew problem. This is an all human beings problem. 
And yet the Jews were given the law, and so this is what happens. To be confronted with the law as a sinful human being is to be shown ever more clearly and in ever deepening ways just how sinful we are. The law shows us how holy God is and how not holy we are. And so to have the law, while it was a gracious provision allowing them to draw near, it also communicated century after century, there is not really peace. God has made these provisions so you can dwell near him, so you can know him, and yet they are not actually, these sacrifices of bulls and lambs and goats year after year are not really, as the writer of the Hebrew says, putting away sin. What they're communicating to you is how much you really need real peace. And the Jews who understood that rightly, not all did, but those who understood it rightly, those who practiced it in faith, recognized somehow, some way, and it's not by goats, somehow, some way, God is going to provide peace. Somehow in the future, it's not going to be us with a tabernacle, with the holy of holies that we can't go into, and there's always the danger that God might break out. Somehow, some way, it's not going to be that. Somehow, some way, God is going to provide real peace, real cleansing, real forgiveness. And so we do these things in faith looking forward. Not all Jews understood that, but some did. They understood that they were looking forward in faith to the real fulfillment of the promise. But in the meantime, the law highlighted for them the separation. It, it drew them nearer, it allowed them to be closer, but it also highlighted you are not actually at peace by these things. And for Gentiles, all, all the more, they, they don't have access to any of it. If they're aware at all that there's a holy God and they're sinful people, they are, again, set adrift in a world without hope and with no, nothing to look forward to. And fellow believers, if you can hear, you should hear, regardless of your ethnicity, you should hear in that history of the Jews and the Gentiles our own reality, the reality of our need, the reality that there is enmity between us and a holy God. The same Adam versus Eve, Adam and Eve enmity with God, and the same Adam versus Eve enmity. See, the law... Both allowed the Jews to draw near. It amplified their enmity with God while also providing a way for them to be near him. It also amplified their enmity with the Gentiles. It created this sharp distinction. And so pride and self-righteousness and hostility were, were amplified and sharpened. The hostility and the pride and the self-righteousness that are there anyway in our hearts were amplified by this wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. So, the law was a good thing. As Paul says in Romans, the law was holy and righteous and good. It did provide a way for them to dwell near God, and yet the law made palpably and painfully clear the need for peace. If you were a Gentile, you were aware that there was an unbridgeable gap between you and God. And if you were a Jew, you were able to dwell with God, and yet the law hung over like a, like a sword ready to fall. Communicating day by day, there is a holy God, and I am not holy for those who didn't look forward in faith, who weren't anticipating in faith the true salvation the Lord was going to provide, they, they just lived with a weight, deceiving themselves at best that they had peace with God because they were doing all these things. There is a need for peace. And so Paul 
communicates that was once the truth. But now peace has been made. So, second theme running through these passages, the making of peace. Look at what Paul says in verse 13, and this is dramatic. But now, it echoes the but God up above. You were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive. The but now. Gentiles, you were separated. There was a wall. There was a need for peace, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, he says, verse 14, here's how that can be. You were far off, you have been brought near for. And that gets him into his second section, and he's going to explain that wall That dividing wall is gone. Christ Jesus has broken down that wall. And and I think I think we are meant to see while there while there was a wall between Jew and Gentile, I I think we're also meant to see that it's not just that wall, but it's all the walls. Think about the the literal setup. You have you have the, the people of Israel separated from the Gentiles, you have the tabernacle, so where the presence of God dwells, but there's the outside of the tabernacle where sacrifices are made so that they can be at peace with God. Then there's the curtain separating the Holy of Holies. There's wall after wall after wall. There's separation after separation after separation. Paul says it's down. I think he's most immediately talking about the Jew and Gentile wall. But I think also by extension, he, th- these walls are done. This wall of hostility and separation thing is done. But if you're reading carefully, and if you're thinking about your your Bible history, you might say, well, hold up a second. How is that a good thing? How, How is it a good thing that the wall is gone? Because the wall is what allowed sinful people to dwell with the holy God without being consumed. The the wall was a gracious provision so that God didn't crush them the way he did the Egyptians. All well and good for the Jews and Gentiles to sing kumbaya and shake hands and be together, but if God's fire is going to come out and consume them, that's not good at all. Protective walls, however separating they might be, uh, are, are not things you want broken down when on the other side of them is the wrath of God. So, so how, how, Paul, how is this a good thing that the wall has been broken down? This doesn't seem like a good thing. Well, there's a lot of different ideas among faithful Orthodox Christians faithful to God's word, what exactly, how exactly are we as Christians supposed to relate to the law? In what sense is it down? In what sense is it abolished? I mean, if it's a good and holy and righteous thing, in one sense, what do you mean, Paul, that it's abolished? And there's different views of that, but at least two things are true. At least two things are true about the law and this idea that the, the the law is down. The law is canceled. The law is abolished. At least two things are true. First, the law as a separator between Jew and Gentile is gone. It it defined the people of God who were near and the people of God who were far off. And Paul says that's done. We no longer define the people of God by the Jew-Gentile distinction. We no longer define the people of God by the circumcised and the uncircumcised. We no longer define the people of God by those who are doing all these practices and those who aren't. That's done. The separation and the amplification of the enmity that is produced by the law, that's done. And secondly, the law as a separator between man and God is done. 
Again, you got to hold these two things in tension. The law was a gracious provision from God, but it also amplified and communicated the righteous judgment of God. And Paul says that too is done. How? How? How was that done? Read, read verse, verse 15 with me. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God the Son canceled the the law as a separator of Jew and Gentile, the law as an uplifted sword between mankind and God by receiving that sword in himself. The law no longer separates man and God because the Son of God absorbed the righteous, just wrath of God which was communicated by the law of God. On the cross, what the Lord Jesus did was he perfectly and finally and climactically satisfied the demands of God for perfect obedience and the just demands of God for perfect payment of sin. The law as an uplifted sword fell. God did not cancel his judgment. God did not cancel his justice. God did not remove the reality of his righteous hatred against sin. That sword fell because God is just, but it fell on his son. On the cross, the righteous Hatred of God toward sin. The righteous enmity of God toward rebels. The right hostility of God toward us was expressed. It was expressed upon his son. And exhausted. The law is down because the law is satisfied. In the Lord Jesus. He made peace by. (laughs) He who dwelt for all eternity in perfect fellowship and union and joy and peace with the Father made peace between the Father and rebel humanity by standing in the place of the hostility. Think about about the contrast with Adam. Adam in his sinfulness, and any of us, if we were there, would do the same, and you know it because you see all the ways that self-righteousness and let me blame you and not myself shows up in our own hearts. Adam puts his bride in front of God. Lord Jesus puts his bride behind him and absorbs the wrath of God. Peace between Jew and Gentile, peace between man and God was made by the Lord Jesus on the cross. And because it was Paul says, there is now one new people. One new people of peace. That's our third theme. Look at verse 17. And having come, he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. It's 
very important to recognize in this passage, and there's various places that Paul emphasizes it. Remember, this is a, this is a theme running throughout. Very important to recognize it is not. It is not. This is a major, major teaching in the New Testament because it was a major, major point of false doctrine and confusion in the early church. It is not that the Lord Jesus merely removed the wall so that Gentiles could come in and have access to God in all the same ways that the Jews did. That is not what he did. He did not merely include the Gentiles in the nation of Israel. He created one new people. Not Gentiles joined in with Jews. The Jew-Gentile thing is done. One new people. One new man. What was created at the beginning, what was corrupted in the fall, the Lord Jesus has come and has established a new creation. By absorbing the righteous wrath that hung over the old creation, he's made a new creation, a new people. One new people not defined by ethnicity, not defined by works of hands, not defined by how well they're doing in conformity to the law. No, they are defined by this. They're joined to him. One new people at peace with each other. There's no separation between them. There's no distinction between them. There's no defining them as this and this and this and this so that animosity can be. No, there's one new people united under one Christ. And they are at peace with each other because they are at peace with God. There is no hostility hanging over them. There is no threat of future judgment hanging over them. There's no animosity from God. There's no question of whether they can approach God. No, they're one new man and they are defined by peace with God. The threat and the judgment of the old creation has been absorbed and a new creation has been established in the Lord Jesus at peace with God, at peace with each other. Think about that. If we have peace with God, if the threat of God's judgment does not stand over us, but we have access to him, and we have peace with him, and we have the sure hope of his favor and his help, and his, Paul said in chapter one, waves of his kindness for all eternity, the riches of his kindness poured out on us. That's our prospect what possible reason for animosity between each other should matter? If I'm going to have access to God for all eternity because the Lord Jesus paid for my sin on the cross, what possible conflict between me and you should matter an inch? You and I together are united to the Savior who bought us and brings us into the throne room. Oh, and you have to, you, you can't, passages like this are so rich and we just read them quickly. I want us to notice a couple things slowly. First of all, notice what Paul drives home home. How was this new people created? And, and, and what do we, and what do you, how do you, how do you define this new people? Listen to these phrases, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, by the blood of Christ, for, and this is emphatic, he himself is our peace. 
He is our peace. He is our peace. It is in him that we have peace. It is peace. It is because of him that we have peace. It is being joined to him that we have peace. Down in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Might reconcile us both to God in one body. Verse 18, for through him, the Lord Jesus is the maker of peace. There was an old man, Adam, who died and ushered in, who sinned and ushered in the hostility. And we all live in that hostility. The Lord Jesus is the new Adam who made the new creation and the one new man. It's in him. It's because of him. It's joined to him. It's for him and it's through him and it's to him. It's all about him. Because we are with Jesus, we are one new man. Who cares your ethnicity? Who cares your history? Who cares your nationality? Who cares your politics? Who cares your career? Who cares your sports preferences? The Lord Jesus, Lord of the new age, Lord of the new creation, has brought one new man and joined all of us to himself. How? By absorbing the old hostility, righteous and just, and making a new creation. It's in him. He is our peace. And so, remember verse 17 and 18 are, are, are a return to the theme, and Paul just proclaims it. Having come, he preached peace to the far off and peace to those who were near. The same peace to everyone. The same one new man that we can be joined to. The same Christ we can be joined to. The same new creation. How? Why? Read this slowly, verse 18. Phrase by phrase. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's through him. He accomplished it. He did it. It's only by being joined to him that we have this peace in this one new man. We both, no distinctions, no walls of separation. Anyone and everyone who turns to the Lord Jesus, regardless of their past, regardless of who they are, regardless of their stuff that they're into, all have access. Not nearness, notice that. Not you were far off and, not you're near, and now you're near, but there's a curtain still there. No, no. Remember, it's not Gentiles coming in with the Jews. It's a new man, and this new man doesn't have a curtain. This new man has access. Access. Straight in, straight up to the throne. Boldly, the doors open. This is not... just went through airport security a couple days ago. This is not airport security. This is home for Thanksgiving. You can walk right in. And it's not, notice, notice the word he uses. It's not to God, to the Alpha and Omega, to the Lord, to the King, to the Judge. Those are all important things and they're, they're provided elsewhere in Scripture for us to be encouraged by and humbled by and comforted by. But what he says here is, we have access to the Father. The same relationship. Think about that. The same relationship that the Lord Jesus has enjoyed with the Father from all eternity We have that because we're in him, because we're with him. The Lord Jesus 
has never had anything other than peace with the Father. Now in his flesh, when he died on the cross, he was abandoned by God. But in the mystery of the Trinity, God the Son has never had anything but peace with God. We have that peace now. We, we th- there is zero reason. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, there is zero reason for you to hesitate, for you to not enjoy fully and completely the access that you've been given. Because you are part of the one new man in the Lord Jesus. Where he is, you already have access. Where he is and will be in the new heavens and new earth, there you will be also. And you might ask, well, yeah, but we're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. I don't actually stand in the presence of God basking in the welcome and the freedom and any thought or vestige of hostility is gone. I don't have that yet. Well, that's why he says in one spirit. Yeah, we're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet, but the spirit of God. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, the spirit of God himself dwells in you. How is it, how is it that when all these things in this not yet that we live, this world that is still fallen and our sinful flesh and the old hostility still raises itself up, how is it that we experience conviction of that? It's because God the Spirit is saying, ah, that's, that's the old hostility. That's the old death showing itself up. Friends, that's access. God's not leaving us to to realize the reality of our sin and realize the reality of the need to grow. He's not leaving us to ourselves. How is it that day after day as we fight to put to death pride and anger and lust and selfishness and fear and anxiety and fear of man... How is it that, that we, we fight those things and we keep fighting those things and we don't fight, give up fighting those things? It's because the Spirit of God is dwelling in us. That's access. We have access in one Spirit. All of this new man joined to the Lord Jesus have access to the Father. And one day, one day we will live in his presence. Friends, what a, what a salvation we've been given. What a reality we've been brought into. This isn't just our, our, our religion. This isn't just our thing that we do because it works. This is truth. This is God eternal from eternity past, what he planned and what he's brought about. There is nothing more real than this. It isn't theoretical. It isn't just a feeling. The God of the universe has said, you have access to me through my son. You're one new man at peace with each other because you have peace with me. I think if we were to try to capture what this passage says in a sentence, we could say this. Through his death, Christ Jesus has created a new humanity at peace with each other because we have peace with God. Through his death, Christ Jesus has ushered in a new creation, a new man, a new humanity defined by what he has done on the cross, and therefore, peace with each other, because we have peace with God. The old hostility is gone. It is done. So then you might ask, well, if that's true, 
Why does Paul go back to these you words for the next several passages? He started with Gentiles, you were separated. He went to we have access to the Father, but then he goes back to these you words. Well, because we live still in the fallen world, the old hostility has been vanquished, but it's still there. It's there in an enemy who knows all these things full well and hates them. And so he does everything he can to introduce and to foster and to foment the old hostility because he hates it. He wants to crush and make completely fruitless this one new man. He won't be allowed to succeed, but he's going to try anyway. And oh, he wants to keep anyone else from joining this one new man. And so he brings up the hostility and pulls the strings of hostility and enmity. We have a world who is trapped in the same enmity in which we were once trapped. And realize it or not, they're hostile to this one new man. And most painfully, we have our own flesh, which though paid for by the blood of Christ, its power defeated still continues. And we who have been joined to the new man, are, are, we bring our old flesh with us. And so we have to fight to preserve this peace. What Paul will say in the next chapter, oh, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You are in this one new man, so don't let the old hostility rise up and threaten it. We have to fight the old hostility when we're, when we're having not the best day. And, and the thought of the judgment of God hanging over us. And often that goes hand in hand with breakouts of hostility toward one another. That lifts itself up. Well, friends, you may feel not at all at peace with God or with others some days. But you know what? If you're in the Lord Jesus, you are at peace. You have one new man. So don't put those things to death from a position of slavery to them. That's a lie. Don't put those things to death from a position of a sword hanging over you. That's a lie. Put them to death from the position of being one new man at peace with God because once and for all on the cross, that enmity was done. So it'll rise up. But feel it or not, have a clear view of it or not, have confidence in it or not, doesn't matter. This is true. You are one new man at peace with God, at peace with your fellow believers, so put it to death from that place of faith. Feel it or not. See it or not. Don't let the old enmity threaten unity with fellow believers. Whatever cause that might come from, Raw selfishness, self-righteousness. I'm better than you. I don't deal with the sins you deal with. Opinions about things in the world, perspectives, hobbies, interests, none of it, none of it, none of it should matter compared to being one new man with those people. There was a quote we heard from John Piper at the conference this week. Uh, I'm just going to borrow this phrase. He, he said, the, the church, all other things, all other things, and this is the phrase, compared to the church, compared to this one new man in the Lord Jesus, this new creation, this new salvation, this reality we've been brought into, everything else, it's like dust compared to the sun. This is the people we're joined to. This is the one new man we're a part of. We have peace with God, and so we have peace with each other. Don't let 
opinions and hobbies and interests. Don't let old offenses threaten that unity. We're one new man at peace with each other because we have peace with God. Don't let the fear of man keep you from proclaiming faithfully this hope of peace to those who don't have it yet. As you face neighbors and coworkers and maybe family members around the Thanksgiving table and the fear of where that conversation might go, you know where that fear comes from? It comes from the old hostility. It comes from deep down somewhere, am I really at peace with God? Because I'm not, I need to be afraid of this person and what they might do to me. But if I'm at peace with God, what can man do to me? Get angry at me all you want. Mock me all you want. Ostracize me all you want. I'm at peace with God, and I want you to have it too. Doesn't mean we're unwise. Doesn't mean we're ungracious. Doesn't mean you're foolish and don't make the best use of your time and imitate the Savior and his discernment and how to talk to different people, of course. But in your heart, don't let the old hostility creep in as though anything can be done to you when for once and for all, the Lord Jesus has made peace and joined you to this one new man of peace. And friends, don't, don't let other causes and passions, even good ones, even, even expressly Christian ones, compete with this one new man. It's like dust to the sun. This is what God is doing. This is what he planned from eternity past. This is his purpose to exalt himself by making a people at peace with him. How? Because his son was crushed in their place and is alive again. That's our cause. That's our passion. That's our purpose. That is. That is what should absorb our time, our money, our affections, our prayers, our hopes, our joys. We have peace with God, and we have peace with each other. And listen, that's what we're going to live in for all eternity. The rest of it, like dust, is going to be gone. So don't let other passions interfere with the one new man of peace. This is God's reality. Through the death of the Lord Jesus, he has created one new humanity at peace with each other forever because forever we have peace with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's in you. You yourself are our peace. You left the peace and the joy and the self-sufficiency and the lack of any need or weakness at all and humbled yourself to the point of death in our place, bearing the righteous enmity of God toward us so that we could be at peace with you and peace with each other and live with you for all eternity. And so, Lord, we declare you are worthy of all glory. You're worthy of a people who live and guard and love the peace that they have with each other because they love and enjoy the peace that they have with you. Don't let us live sub-peaceful. And as you promise to do, show us when we are doing that and transform us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise that despite all of the various threats and the doubts in our hearts and the conflicts that arise and the distractions that arise, 
thank you for your promise that you're going to bring us safely home. Where all thought of the hostility will be gone forever. And we will enjoy what we already have, which is perfect peace with you. Lord, I pray for any who are particularly experiencing the lack of that sense of peace with you. Give them faith, whether they feel it or not, whether they see it or not, to trust what you say. Because of what you've done, we have peace with you. Lord, do that in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you feel